Hello, and welcome to PDA, Neurodivergence, and the Perpetually Determined Advocate. I am your Perpetually Determined Advocate, Cassandra. This is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to raising awareness and acceptance of PDA, or Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is a lesser-known part of the autism spectrum. My hope for this podcast is to provide a place of learning and growth, as well as a platform for PDAers, professionals, parents, family members, and others to speak out on this condition, as well as providing resources for those who want to learn more. If you or someone you know would like to come on and use this platform to tell their story, please contact me at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. Now, let's launch into this episode's topic. I'd like to go on a bit of a rant if you'll indulge me. I've been seeing several other posts in my PDA boards talking about having this same issue, and I really just can't push it down any longer. Honestly, I feel like it's a problem that all people connected with PDA have encountered and can relate to, whether you are a parent of a PDAer, if you yourself have PDA, uh, if it's a family member, however the situation may be. And that problem is the willful ignorance of people in terms of interacting with PDA and its presentations. Now, I understand that there are people out there who do not know what PDA is or how it alters a person's interactions with others, uh, their neural pathways, etc. Right? That fact alone is one of the key reasons I started this podcast was to raise that awareness and make more people aware of it. However, when you provide a person with the information on PDA, its scientific background, the study of it, um, the presence of it that is acknowledged by medical professionals and experts in the field, peer-reviewed journals, whatever, you know, like, Things within the professional realm and field of psychology, when you provide that and they still choose not to acknowledge or adapt their approaches, that is willful ignorance and it is absolutely damaging. Last week, I picked my son up from school and as I pulled up into the little drive and they have us pull forward in groups of four, um, to pick the kids up. And as I pulled up to the spot where he was standing, I could already look at him and see that his eyes were red and swollen from crying. And I could see on his face that, I mean, he just had this defeated look on his face. So the staff member opened the door and he got inside and he immediately started crying. And that crying escalated to sobbing and screaming and gasping before I could even get out of the driveway of the school. I pulled over on side of the road as soon as I got out of the traffic and I climbed into the back seat with him. He was in full meltdown. He was trying to hurt himself. I was having to hold on to him and restrain him to keep him from, you know, ramming his head against the door, the window, uh, from, you know, hitting himself in like smacking his head against things. I was having to hold on to him and he was absolutely inconsolable. 
He kept trying to explain to me what happened, but it was coming out in stops and starts because of the, you know, he was so upset. And so all of the words were being masked by the anguish of the sobs. And it's, you know, that way when people get really upset and they try to talk to you while they're just in that absolutely heartbroken mode of sobbing and their words are coming out in like, ah, uh, 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 it's like solid, just solitary syllables. That's what was coming out. And he was having trouble actually just like verbalizing anything, let alone words, right? I did my best to, to soothe him, sat there acted as his safe space, as his calm in the storm, you know, but he didn't stop screaming for almost 10 minutes. Once he was calm enough to stop trying to hurt himself, I was able to get back into my seat and start heading to pick up my older kiddo. Um, But it was a next level meltdown, you know, and I keep my um, my child lock engaged on my back doors because he has before tried to jump out of the car. Now, don't get me wrong. I am accustomed to meltdowns from raising a PDA, right? And I'm used to him being pretty extreme after school for the most part. Um, he masks all day long there. He really does. So by the time he returns to his safe space with his family whether that's in my car when I pick him up, in his dad's car when he picks him up, um, my house, dad's house, whatever. When he gets back to that safe space with family where he knows he's accepted, where he knows he can be himself, he is absolutely exhausted from having to fight all day. He has no energy left to hold back the anxiety and keep the meltdowns at bay. And we know this, right? And we have accepted this for a while but we can't seem to get the school to understand it, right? And that's, that's part of the willful ignorance. To them, the fact that he masks means that he can turn his outbursts on and off. It's a manipulation in their estimation. And I'm not kidding or paraphrasing here either. I wish I was. I wish this wasn't the truth. But when I explained in our last ARD meeting... The reason that they don't see some of the same behaviors at school that we see at home is because he masks with them out of fear of his teacher, who frequently yells at him and is this rather, you know, imposing looking guy who thinks that giving an authoritarian presence is the way to um, get Declan all fixed in line and some such nonsense like that. So when I'm sitting there telling them he masks out of fear and not being accepted or fear that they'll hate him for being who he is, his special education teacher, this man, looked at me and said, so you're saying he can just turn it on and off? And I tried explaining that, no, masking is a trauma response, right? That this is a defense mechanism almost. And honestly, for someone who is a special education teacher and works with children that have cognitive differences, he should be better informed about that. He really should. And 
it was like I was speaking a foreign language that they had no intention of ever trying to learn. And when I explained again what PDA was, how it was difficult to get the diagnosis, and all of that, his general education teacher looks at me and said, so you found a doctor that would give you the diagnosis that you wanted for him. And I was like taken aback. Like it took everything I had to sit there calmly and respond, you know, as if you can just go to a licensed psychologist and tell them, I want this diagnosis for my child and they'll just write it out for you, whatever you want. Here you go. Off you pop. No, that's not how it works, right? He was assessed by a professional who honestly didn't even think he had PDA when she gave him the assessment. She was fairly convinced that he was autistic, but she did not think that he met the guidelines for PDA. And she was surprised when the scientific assessment, diagnostic tools and results pointed to the fact that he did in fact have it. So no. No one just gives you a diagnosis. You have to be assessed. You have to meet the criteria. It has to be something that meets scientific signposts. There have to be things there. That's why it can't just, you can't just be assessed by anyone. Plus, when it comes to PDA, we all know it's not that easy to find a provider who is trained in how to assess for PDA. So I didn't find someone who would give me what I wanted. I had to find someone who was even capable. The same way that you're not going to go to a psychiatrist for neurosurgery. If you need brain surgery, you're not going to a psychologist. You're going to a neurosurgeon. Why? Because they have that specialty. It's the same thing with psychiatrists, psychologists. They're not all specializing in everything right? Some people specialize in bipolar. Some people specialize in spectrum disorders. Some people specialize in other things. You know, there's a variety of doctors and you have to go to certain people for certain things. But to them, I just found somebody that was willing to give me the answer that I wanted because I, I wanted some sort of special, uh, label for my son. I don't know. It, it was infuriating. And I think that is what's at the core of many of our problems as parents with PDAers in school. When he first started, I, you know, when he switched to that school, I brought information packets, not like really big, thick ones, but inform it just, you know, basic information packages to his counselor and his teachers, his special education teachers at the new school when he started there back in January of 2021. I did not expect them to go out and research and educate themselves on PDA and what it is. I didn't expect them to find anything for themselves. I did all the work for them and I brought them some basic information to explain it and a list of places where they could go to get more information on techniques and things that could be used with a child like Declan because here's the thing he was going to that school so that he could be in a smaller group which meant they would be able to alter their 
approaches with him to work with him better because it was a smaller group of children. And all I asked them to do was to read the things that I gave them so they could understand my son better and know how to interact with him best. Well, it better than if they didn't know anything at all, right? And that was the whole thing. That was why they were putting him in that small group was because that way, with there fewer children in the room, the teacher, the special education teacher could take that extra time to be able to approach um, these kids and meet them where they are. Because I understand that in a general education classroom, you have a teacher that has 25 kids. It's not always easy to tailor their approach to each child individually and still get done all the things that are expected of them. But when he is in a class with five other children, that does provide the opportunity to tailor approaches and interactions, especially when there are two teachers for six kids. And that was the sole reason why the small group class was suggested for him in the first place. So then why? Why does my son routinely ask me if his teacher hates him? Why does he even... Sometimes not even ask the question, just outright says, he hates me. And I'm like, he's, he has never said he hates you. Well, he thinks it because he does not like me. Why does he routinely ask if he's going to get kicked out of school because of the fact that they don't like him or that they're going to get rid of him? Why does he not feel safe being himself? Why does he feel like he has to hide his truth and who he is? As a mother, it infuriates me when someone does something damaging to one of my children and make no mistake, this is damaging to these kids. If you need proof, all you have to do is turn to the neuroscience, right? In a very sort of brief in a nutshell way, the amygdala is the emotion processing center of the brain, right? It is what triggers the fight or flight response. It's what tells us it, it gets activated when there's danger. People who experience trauma, like being so overwhelmed by an ignorant response that you're sent into a meltdown, for instance, right? People who experience that kind of trauma have heightened anxiety, hypervigilance, and they're easily startled. They tend to avoid the place, person, or event that caused the trauma, right? Because they associate those things together. And when a person is routinely placed in contact with that stimuli that's deemed dangerous, then it causes them to have an overactive amygdala. It's in a constant state of overactivity. And you have other parts of the brain that are supposed to aid in telling the amygdala that, you know, it's okay to calm down like the danger has passed and you're like the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex are part of that process right the hippocampus is what sends the signal to the amygdala that the danger has passed and there's no need to stay alert but continued exposure to trauma like being punished for how your brain reacts to certain situations can cause the hippocampus to constantly perceive a situation as dangerous to create those um, memories and those alerts 
and keep recalling other memories that have also happened that are associated with the same person or place or event. And therefore, it sends the message to the amygdala to keep going. It never tells the amygdala to calm down, that they're no longer in danger. And then you have the prefrontal cortex where impulses and emotions are governed, but that's another part of the brain that's supposed to help signal the amygdala that it's okay to calm down, right? That you don't have to be in that heightened state of hypervigilance. And so one of the indicators for, like, say, PTSD, which is honestly what this kind of treatment for PDA children can cause, one of the, some of those signs, like things like withdrawal and avoidance are indicators of trauma in a person and reduced activation of their prefrontal cortex. My son is constantly in a state of fear. And that has, is something that's been getting worse as this school year has stretched on. And it's almost like because it's coming to an end and they know that he's about to leave and go to another school, like they're not even willing to work with him anymore. And so any little noise startles him. Any, like he'll hear something, what was that? He's always scared that something's going to happen. He's always in this heightened sense of fear and anxiety that he wasn't in before. And he gives, he comes home with a lot more stories about how his teacher is getting angry with him. And it's like all of this is just escalating and it's sending him into this, this constant state of fear, which is he's eight years old. He should not live in a constant state of fear. So what am I saying here? Right. To put it simply, by continuing to choose to interact in negative and counterintuitive ways with our PDA children and or PDA adults in the workplace, people are causing PTSD. They're causing the brains of these individuals to have trouble communicating what they're supposed to do. They live in these constant states of hypervigilance and fear. They exhaust themselves trying to find the best way to fool those around them who are essentially torturing them. This is abuse. Plain and simple. And it needs to stop. Period. That's what I'm saying. Okay? PDAers, they do not deserve to be traumatized because neurotypical people are incapable or unwilling to wrap their brains around the fact that not everyone reacts the same. Okay? PDAers deserve a place in this world. They deserve to feel accepted and not marginalized. And children should not have to learn how to mask and live fearful lives in a place that is supposed to be nurturing them, helping them to grow and learn. You want to know what my son's crime was that day that he was so overcome last week? He had picked up another student's things from a chair that he wanted to sit in. And he had moved them to another chair and set them down there. He then sat down on the chair that he had cleared out. That was it. The other student came up and tried to yank my son out of the chair physically grabbing my son by the shoulders and pulling him down, trying to yank him out of the chair. There was no fight that ensued, right? Other than that child grabbing my son and trying to throw him down. My son never hit. 
just the other child putting their hands on him after he moved the belongings, right? The special education teacher came up, proceeded to yell at my son for touching another person's things and took away his PE and recess for an entire week. This is heinous for a number of reasons. One, that punishment is exceedingly unwarranted and far too severe. My son picked up someone else's things and moved them to a different chair. He didn't throw the stuff on the floor. He didn't break anything. He simply picked them up and moved them so he could sit down. So how does that warrant anything more than a verbal reminder that we shouldn't touch other people's belongings? Like, that should have been it. The sum total. And that other child that tried to yank him out of the chair, there I can understand there needed to be a punishment. And not just because he was putting his hands on my child, but because he put his hands on anybody. I don't care whose kid it is. Those are the kinds of things that we need to be handling. Then there's yelling at a child who has just been physically shocked by someone else. Oh, and when Declan asked... If the other kid was in trouble, the teacher said he didn't know. He would think about it. So the child that actually committed some sort of offense and put his hands on another child, he might get in trouble. But the one who moved someone's belongings is being heavily reprimanded. And this is sending like an extremely powerful message to my son that he deserved to be attacked for touching someone else's things and that he is at fault for how other people react to his different way of seeing things. Declan saw a chair. He wanted to sit in, so he moved the things and sat down. That does not warrant physical assault of any kind ever. I mean, let's not forget either. My son, in addition to having ASD and PDA, has ADHD. So taking away physical exercise completely is even worse. He has no outlet, right? Not only is this a direct violation of his medical directive from the psychologist who diagnosed him, because she straight up said taking away physical activity as a punishment is very counterproductive and damaging for ADHD children because of the fact that they need the outlet. They need to get that out, right? But it's also a violation of state law. By law, in Texas, it is mandated that children are required to have at least 135 minutes of activity per week per child, okay? So this action violates those, both of those things at the same time, because I asked him, I said, so you haven't, you can't go to PE or recess all week? He said, no, and I haven't, because whenever I picked him up Thursday, um, because they were out Friday, I said, did you go to PE and recess at all this week? And he said, no, I didn't. And I'm like, okay, did your teacher let you go outside because their classroom is in a separate little building? So did he let you go outside in the little courtyard and run around a little bit to get some exercise? He said, no, the only time I left the room was to go to lunch and to go to um, the other teacher's room. That was it. So he has violated a medical directive and a state law, all because Declan moved some books and a backpack, right? The other thing is they have also started giving him the same timed tests that the other children are taking, which is a violation of his 504 plan. 
And they're mandated to follow that by not only the state, but federal guidelines under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I have a meeting with his school uh, when they return next week to explain all of this to them. Make them aware that if they don't put a stop to this abuse, they will be reported to all of the different agencies who oversee these areas and how they are violating my son's rights and how they are, in fact, causing abuse to my child. Because PDAers, autistic people, ADHDers, and neurodivergent people of all types should not have to endure this, right? Those of us raising neurodivergent children know the struggle and the advocacy on part of our children all too well. It is a situation that needs to change. And we owe it to those we love and even those we don't know to stand with them and lend them our voices to their cries for acceptance and to help them push for much needed changes. Thank you for indulging my rant. I know that it sounds quite close to the experiences of so many of you out there. And please know my heart is with you because we have a long road ahead of us. But I think if we keep pushing and keep lending our voices to the neurodivergent community and, you know, standing alongside them and making sure that they are heard, that we can begin to really start making inroads. But it has to happen because this kind of treatment, this kind of abuse, it has to stop. As always, you can email me with any questions, comments, constructive criticism, or concerns at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on social media. Just search PDA Neurodivergence and the Perpetually Determined Advocate on Facebook or Instagram. And until next time, remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.